by law students for past, present, and future law students bringing you information to help your career this is The Law School Show with Rishi and Chris that last one but I'm learning there slowly yeah that that's that's almost a lot we can say that Rishi's learned that in the past seven minutes <laughs> well we we do have a good teacher here who's been playing it pretty much his entire life mad skills Rish what's going on man how are you good good how are you doing CD fantastic I can say that we're rolling into exams right now as yeah. we record this it's mid November you know we got basically four weeks left of first semester 3L yeah, man, it, uh, it kind of flew by this semester, and uh, I think December break would be a good time just to look back and see what we have done with the show and our lives this semester. I like it. But before we get to that, who are we talking to today? We got Mr. Fernando Garcia. He's the general counsel for Nissan and Infinity Canada. How? And what a great guy. Oh, yeah. I think he's a really good reflection of how to be a nice guy while being a lawyer. Definitely. He tells us about what life is like as a general counsel. He also talks a bit about uh, the difference between a general counsel's role versus being in private practice. Really valuable. And he's a genuine story about how following your interests and trusting your instincts will ultimately benefit your career development. That's exactly right. So without any further ado, here's Mr. Fernando Garcia. All right, good morning, gentlemen. We're here with Fernando Garcia, General Counsel at Nissan Canada. Fernando, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Excellent. Yourself? Fantastic. Great. And, of course, I've got my man Rishi here as well. You know it. <laughs> so, Fernando, tell us about yourself without talking about law. Sure. Um, I was born in Argentina. I left Argentina about one year of age, and I went to to Uruguay, and I spent uh, quite a bit of time growing up in Uruguay. Arrived in Canada around the age of ten, and you know, I just had uh, some struggles in school. I was never a great student. Uh, grew up in the Jeannie Shepherd, Gina Fincherry of Toronto, mm -hmm. and I went through four high schools. My uh, average wow. at that time was about mid sixties to uh, 60s, thanks to gym and geography, which were my favorite courses and the only ones that did very well. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from that, I was not the best student. Uh, you know, I just I wasn't challenged. I didn't enjoy it. I preferred to be outside with, you know, friends playing soccer or, you know, just hanging around rather than being inside and studying. And homework was something I just didn't uh, didn't really pursue and I didn't do very much of. I think so a lot of people it was can a bit relate of a challenge to that. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Um, grade 12, completed grade 12, bit of a challenge, but completed grade 12, took some time off of school, and I, you know, I worked casual jobs, you know, the temporary jobs through agencies, did everything mm -hmm. from shipping and handling to moving to, to a bit of everything, you know, got to really see different jobs, got to experience a lot of different things, different corporate environments, so, you know, I really enjoyed that experience. Let me stop you there just for a moment, because... Sure. Something that we've been uh, thinking about a lot lately is the difference between going straight from high school to um, some kind of post-secondary 
right. or alternatively taking a little bit of time off, making a little money, trying a few things and better positioning yourself to make a, a strong career choice when you're actually going into undergrad. So do you think that you benefited from taking that time off? I, I, for me personally, it was a great thing, um, okay. especially when I got into HR and labor relations. Just having a diff, uh, you know a good understanding of different working environments, the challenges, and you know some of the staffing issues, and I, I thought it was really really important for me, a, a great advantage for me. That's and I also tell people that depends on what you're doing. If you're going to be taking time off and really lounging around doing nothing, no, it's probably not a good idea. But if you're taking some time off and you're traveling the world, or you're becoming experienced. Uh, you know, maybe volunteering is something really important, something that would add to your career. And by all means, it's it's there's no Did timeline. That, the time is what you make it. Yeah, of course. Did that time actually give you a better idea about what you wanted to do in undergrad? It, it did. Uh, it gave me two things. One of them was a perspective that I didn't want to go back, and maybe if I tried hard enough, then maybe I could do something different. Maybe I could do something more academic-focused. And on the other hand, yes, it, it also sort of, inspired me to, to do something different than I always thought I was going to do. I mean, I, I thought I was going to go into construction or doing something with my hands, and mm -hmm. it quickly became apparent that I, I'm not very good at that. <laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah, please continue on with the, with the story. So you, you're working for this couple of years, and then what's the next move? Well, I, I went back, and back when, it, when I was uh, sort of still in school, we had something called the OEC, which I think was the Ontario Academic uh, Courses, Mm -hmm. that you had to complete in order to get to, into university. So yeah. I, I took my shot at that, uh, studied really hard, tried to do my best, and I squeaked in with an 80% into the McMaster Labor Studies program. Nice. Fantastic. Which was really really good. And again, uh, it was a program that was sort of a mix of a business, HR, and sort of social studies kind of program. So it had different elements of things that I liked. And for the first time, I didn't have to get pressured to go to school. I wanted to go to school. I wanted to be there. I wanted to learn. And I was paying for it, so I might as well get the most out of it. Yeah, it's amazing how that change in perspective can make you more successful. Oh, huge. Yeah. So did you go right from undergrad to law school then? No, I actually, I was debating what to do. And I had done very well in the undergraduate. For some reason, it just clicked. Uh, the lowest grade I got was a B plus, And everything was just great. So going from terrible in high school to, you know, just very, I found it very easy, very interesting to be in the university. So I decided, what should I do now? And one of the things I wanted to do was uh, HR, labor relations. So I applied. I got a scholarship to go into the Masters of Industrial Relations at the University of Toronto. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I did uh, two years of, of the master's program. And then yeah. I applied for law afterwards. Did it just seem like a natural next step for you when uh, after that uh, program at UFT? Yeah, at that point, yes, because I started getting involved in labor relations, and I was working at OPG, Ontario Power Generation, as a labor relations consultant. Yeah. And I started to get exposed into some of the legal issues, and I started to understand that beyond the HR and labor relations piece, you know, the legal made a good fit, you know, it was a really good fit between the two, and mm -hmm. I thought it, was a, it would be powerful to have both sort of mixes, the MIR and the LLB. And how was your law school then? It was good. It was a good experience. Uh, the, the thing that uh, sort of affected my law school years was I refused to write the LSAT. I, really? I hated the LSAT. I, I couldn't. I couldn't uh, understand, or I couldn't accept that you know, four-hour, five-hour test will determine, you know, what uh, what your next steps in, in your career would be when you have four years uh, of undergraduate and two years of master's degree 
to back you up to see that you could handle law school. I understand that. And so I, I took some of those prep courses, and on a good day, I was in the you know 90 percentile, and on a bad day, I was in the 60. <laughs> so that inconsistency, I said, you know, it's too much risk. So I looked right. around, and McGill didn't require an LSAT. Oh, yeah. And it had a, the civil and common law degree in the three-year program. Perfect. So I thought oh. that, would, that would be perfect. So I applied. Oh, was that all English, or there was English and French? There, there was quite a bit of French as well. Um, okay. Some of the text and some of the the material, but uh, I'm also Spanish, so mm -hmm. th that helped quite a bit. And so I, I just made the effort and said, you know, even if it's harder for me to do it, I'd rather sort of go through the process, learn the civil and the common law, okay. which for me coming from Latin America is important because the civil law jurisdiction. Right. So I said, might as well do that. And so I went through that process and. It wasn't the best student again. I mean, it was sort of harder because of the French, but I found that being in an environment with, you know, two different civil law jurisdictions made it very interesting. And a lot of it was comparing one versus the other, so I quite mm -hmm. enjoyed that. Would you have done anything differently in law school if uh, if you could go back and do it all over again? Well, when you're a student, you know, you become very focused upon getting through it. That's true. And, but you, you really, it, you become so immersed in trying to get this done and trying to, you know, to get the the best uh, marks possible, and that that's important. Don't get me wrong, but you know when you're in an environment like that where you're exposed to people from so many different backgrounds, from so many different perspectives, from so many different ideological backgrounds, it, it is great to be able to to network and focus on the social piece as well. And I didn't do enough of that. That's the one thing I do regret. Mm-hmm. Do you, when you were in law school, did you have a clear idea or a general idea about where you wanted to go and practice law or what kind of law you wanted to practice? Well, because of my HR background, I always thought that, you know, labor and employment law was going to be my, my main source of, of focus. You know, I loved it. I, I really wanted to do that piece of it. And I thought that was going to be my, compar you know, my competitive advantage. I thought that's what I was going to do great at. Mm -hmm. And I, I still enjoyed it. And, you know, it's something that I've always had a passion for. But the more I became involved, the more I started saying, well, you know what? There's this other piece that I'm missing that I really like, too. That's called the business piece. Yeah. And so I started wanting something that had a bit more of a mix of business, HR, and law. Nice combination. Sorry? Oh, it's just a nice combination. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I, like I call it, it's a three-legged stool, right? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> The legal, the HR, and the, the business together, I mean, just makes it uh, that much stronger in terms of your, your career opportunities and even your, you know, your worth that you bring to your client. Yeah, it's very holistic. So where did you article? I article at Hicks Morley, which is a labor and employment law boutique in Toronto. Okay. And, you know, back when I was there, it was still, you know, relatively mid-sized firm. Now, I mean, they're, they're, they're much larger and they're... They're you know expanding into different areas like the pension and benefits, so they, they do a bit of everything. But when I was there, I focused predominantly on interest arbitration and you know grievance process, grievance arbitrations and things like that, which was really exciting, very interesting stuff. And how many years did you actually end up staying at Hicks Morley? That was uh, quite an interesting sort of uh, development. I, I was at Hicks Morley. I did the article. Yeah. And upon the end of, of the articling process, I, I still was not sure what I wanted. I really had that mix in my mind of, well, do I want to be doing HR? Do I want to be doing business? Do I want to be doing law? I wasn't 100% clear yet. Yeah. So as I was sort of scratching my head thinking, what's next? 
an opportunity sort of became available that fell in my lap, literally, uh, to become a labor relations manager at one of my former clients at Hicks Morley for six months. So I said, you know what, I'm not really sure what I want to do yet. This sounds like a great opportunity to just, you know, get my my hands, you know, dirty and get in there and see how I can mix in the, the you know, the legal with the labor relations HR. So I started doing that job. I did that for six months. Mm-hmm. Is that Navistar? It, it was in HR, yes. Is that Navistar that you're talking yeah, about? Navistar, yeah, Navistar, yeah. Back then it was called International Truck and Engine Corporation Canada. And then okay. we changed it to Navistar. But, yeah, it was Navistar. So, again, six months of really getting down dirty, you know, learning the the the, um, the collective agreements, learning the players, learning the business, learning the issues. Great, great experience. And again, serendipitously again, one of the former, um, one of my former uh, partners at Hicks Morty and one of my mentors set up his own thing, hung up his own shingle and started his own firm. And so okay. he asked me to come down with him and ended up doing that for another couple of years, labor and employment law. We hear uh, in a lot of the people um, we speak to about their their career trajectory development. It seems like, or the, the way they speak about it is like it was almost lucky. Yes. But when when we're looking at these people and sort of looking at their their backgrounds, it seems like they've set up signposts for themselves along the way. It's it's almost like you got to be good to be lucky, and you've got to cr- almost create and be ready for the opportunity, and then seize it when it's there. So, how do, what, what is your perspective more in line with that? Definitely, I I think yeah. it's a mix of both, right? I, okay. I think you could be lucky, but then if you don't have what it takes to sustain it, or to really take full advantage of the opportunity that's given to you, it sort of slips away. You you have to be prepared for it, and you know not in terms of prepared like tomorrow I have to do this or the next day has to be this way. But you have to be able to, to understand, to, to see the, the opportunity when it becomes available. And don't be judgmental about it. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. something that you don't think leads to your ultimate objective, it actually ends up getting there. It just doesn't take the straight path. It might just take a couple of weaves and turns to get there. Yeah, that's a good point. So when you were in actually a Hicks-Morley, if we can take a step back, yeah. what, compared to what you thought going into what labor employment law might look like, did it kind of live up to your expectation, or were you a bit surprised? A bit of both. I mean, uh, obviously, you, you know, you go into it and you think you're going to be in negotiations every day, or you think you're going to be doing, you know, these interesting hearings and trials every day. But the reality is, and most people, especially when they come out of law school, come to learn this very quickly. I mean, it's 95% of it is, you know, preparation, and then 5% is the actual execution. Right. You know, when you get into that situation, we have to be writing memos, when you have to be doing all these things, it gets a little frustrating. You want to get out there. You want to prove yourself. You want to, you know, be able to interact with the clients. And sometimes, you know, you, you become a bit frustrated with the process, but you have to understand that it is part of the process. Mm-hmm. And is that, was, was those, those the reasons why you decided to make the shift to Navistar eventually? Well, because I really wanted to get more, uh, you know, more of the the business piece of it, you know. I, I find that when you're in private practice, you get brought into an issue and, you know, you work with the in-house counsel and, you know, you develop a solution, you develop a strategy, you develop, you know, an implementation plan, but then you're gone. But when you're in-house, you actually own it. Mm -hmm. You work with the implementation. You you basically become the, the, you know, the spokesperson for that process or or the the head of that initiative. And I find that that's so much more interesting in terms of what I like. I like to be able to maintain that relationship. I like to be able to, you know, see it through to fruition. 
How did events unfold um, moving from Navistar to your current role with Nissan and Infinity Canada? Well, I had been at uh, Navistar for six years as a general counsel. And beyond that, I got to do a bit more than just general counsel. I was the director of HR as well. Mm-hmm. And I had to, you know, the opportunity of doing a lot of other interesting things like setting up the, the Canadian military uh, division of that company. So basically wow. took it on and got oh, involved yeah. in everything. Amazing experience, right? It was just perfect experience. And then this opportunity became available, and it was a company that was, you know, growing fast. They they wanted to have somebody who had a, a bit of a diverse experience background, and I was able to develop that. And at Navistar, it just seems like a perfect fit. So, did you uh, actively apply for the job at Nissan, or how, how did the relationship actually begin? Well, I think that you raise a really good point, and this is something I need to really emphasize to everybody. Network, 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 network. Right. And LinkedIn is an incredible key mm-hmm. you know, for success. Uh, I was actually headhunted, and okay. all of that came from LinkedIn. I mean, it's incredible mm-hmm. the amount. You know, you're basically putting out a resume to everybody out there, and you're basically telling everybody, these are my skills and abilities. Mm-hmm. It's it's an incredible tool, and I really I cannot emphasize enough that people should really focus on it and take full advantage of it, because if it you, is your calling card. So if you can just sidestep a bit on about talking about networking, what are certain things that students who are either just graduating or in the second third year of law school do better now so that they uh, they start building that network early on? I, I think the key is you, you need to get to know people. You need to reach out to people who are in areas that are of interest to you. Become involved in associations or groups that are working on certain initiatives that are important to you. It's incredible how much more uh, you become aware of or how many more opportunities come your way from people and from word of mouth than from going somewhere and looking up for jobs in the Internet or anywhere else like that. I mean, a lot of it really happens, you know, through informal networks more than it happens through formal networks. And so it's, it's really fundamental to get to know people, to get – Beyond just the career piece, it's also a good opportunity to get a realistic job preview of what it means. What you know, I've always wanted to be a labor and employment lawyer. Well, maybe I should sit down with a labor and employment lawyer and talk to them yeah. about what is day to day. Yeah, we know like you're also big on mentorship as well. I, I know you do a bit bit of work with uh, Osgood. So, can you speak a bit about how can a student go about trying to find a good mentor and how do you start building those relationships? Sure. I mean, there's formal and there's informal ways of doing that. Um, you know, the formal ways, you know, you go through the, like Osgood has, or you go through the Canadian Corporate Council Association. I know they have student memberships as well. And you can become part of the process. And they'll, they'll match you up with somebody who meets, a, you know, certain criteria that you determine to be important to you. And so that's yeah. the formal way. The informal way is just really reach out and touch someone and, and talk to somebody and say, listen, you know, I noticed that you're, the general counsel of this company or you're the you know, associate general counsel of this company and I'm really interested, can, can you just sit down for, you know, and have a coffee with me for a couple of hours and just chat about something? And you, you'll be surprised how many people actually take that opportunity and actually do this. Um, I found that that's one of the, the biggest things that I learned early on is, you know, people are really friendly, and especially, you know, in-house counsels. I mean, they, they tend to be it's such a small community and such a close mm-hmm. community and when somebody reaches out and says, hey, can I take an hour of your time? Everybody's busy, but they'll make that time for you. Mm-hmm. And I find that, that's, you know, just, you, if you don't ask, you don't get. That's, that's very that, true. Yeah, you got to be bold and you just got to say, hey, listen, uh, I'm interested in this area. Can you just take 
half an hour to an hour and talk to me about it. Yeah, and usually that ask is the hardest part because once you get into the room, it's like, oh, we're we're a lot alike. <laughs> All oh, yeah. of a sudden, and you kind yeah. of bond with that person. It's like going going from zero to one is is often the hardest step. So one thing that um, I find is that I can I can make that ask. I can get in the room with someone, and we have a nice conversation for a half an hour. But then they go back to their job and they're really busy, and I go back to my law school and I have a couple more years before I'm actually back out into the job market. So what do you suggest in terms of um, sort of maintaining or adding to that little bit of emotional equity that you build in that half hour with someone. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I, part, part of it is really maintaining that, that relation and the contact, you know, and making sure that you send a note every once in a while or that you sort of stay in the person's radar. Right. But I, I think, you know, you also have to be, um, you know, t- take advantage of whatever tidbits of information are given to you, experiences, and then build from that. You know, ask, I know you're busy, but is there somebody else I can talk to within your organization? Yeah, or somebody else that you know in the, in the legal profession that I should talk to? And then you're sort of getting off that person's plate. They, they've helped you to some extent, and then maybe they can connect you with somebody else. And then you're taking advantage of that network that they have yeah. as well. So it's just not that person. Think about broader than that one particular person and how they can help you sort of maybe get them different perspectives and get to know more people, build a network. And that, again, network, network, network. And associations. You know, on my end, you know, there's, for example, the Hispanic Ontario Lawyers Association. There's, mm-hmm. you know, Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. There's all these other areas, these opportunities for you to get to know people. And it's so important that you take advantage of that. Fantastic. Uh, so now let's uh, take a step uh, towards Nissan. So what is your role actually as a general counsel in Nissan? I know a lot of people speak about going in-house, but what does it actually mean uh, to be a general counsel? There's, I guess, uh, you know, you're here for your client. Versus being in private practice, you have one client. That is basically Nissan. And within Nissan, there's different people and different you know, divisions. What you are is basically you're in charge of risk management, you're in charge of identifying legal issues and business strategies that are developed, you're in charge of taking ownership for those you know, legal strategies and developing the legal strategies, and working with your team or by yourself. You basically, you become the intermediary between the business and the external counsel or the you know, subject matter expert of the legal piece. Are you part of the executive team then? Can you describe the corporate structure a little bit and how you as general counsel fit into that? Right. Um, we are uh, a Canadian organization here, and we yeah. report into the U.S., and then the U.S. reports into sort of the global corporation from Japan. Okay. So most of the work that I do involves the Canadian piece, so within the border of Canada. But every once in a while, we still do you know, sharing of best practices and reporting on an international level. But basically, this is my play area. This is my, my backyard in Canada, and that's what I focus on. That's a big backyard. It's a, big backyard. <laughs> it's a great one. And you know what? Uh, depends on who you talk to, especially the guys in sales. It, it's almost like there's different countries within the country because every area uh, in this beautiful world, you know, country that we have is, is very unique and very different and have different interests and different yeah, certainly. laws. So it, it, it is quite quite large, and you know it's sometimes a challenge to be up to speed on everything that's going on everywhere. But it's uh, it's exciting. And in terms of your other question, yeah, I'm part of the you know I sit at the table with the executives, and and my job is to make sure that I can listen to what the initiatives are, what things are happening, 
and to uh, not be caught unaware when something comes up. Yeah. How many uh, how many people are in part of the legal team in Nissan Canada? Here we have five of us. Um, there's one other lawyer who's my associate general counsel. Yeah. Then we have a arbitration specialist who deals with uh, a lot of the, the claims, you know, regarding vehicles. We have a senior paralegal who deals with a lot of privacy issues and some of the paralegal work and stuff here, and advertising, mm-hmm. marketing. And then we have a legal coordinator as well. And how how much percent of your work would you say you keep in house versus uh, sending to a, say a firm? And how do you make that decision whether to keep something in house or send it out? I think it depends on how comfortable you are with the work. Uh, sometimes. You know, if you're very comfortable with a certain subject area, you might be able to do most of the work and then maybe you just send it out to external counsel and say, hey, listen, you know, this is the issue. This is sort of my response. Does it look okay? Are, are we sort of giving you the tools that you need in case this ever blows up in your litigation and you need to take it and run with it? Have I given you the appropriate tools you need and have I gotten the file to the point where I can transfer it and give you a strong case? Mm-hmm. So that, that's very important, but it, it all depends on the comfort level, right? The, my team here has people who who are very experienced, who are very knowledgeable of the subject matter, so I'm very confident that they can take it up to a certain point by themselves and we don't need to really escalate it. But if it's litigation, for example, then we don't have the time or the resources to really, you know, dedicate ourselves to it. So that's usually when you go external. You just, uh, you know, we're not large enough to, to do that in-house. So we, we work with an external counsel. We become their sort of go-to person with regard to the relationship with the client. Uh, we, in essence, become their client. And we're in charge of helping them, you know, obtain documentation, make sure that we prep the witnesses, that we we take the, you know, bring the the business perspective into the litigation piece. I feel like your your business background would play in large here because you almost have a, a management-type role where you have to promote efficiencies in terms of your legal expenditures, right? Like, do you keep it in-house or is this something that we would – get more um, benefit from by putting it outside. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And one thing I was always very critical of in terms of law school itself is that law school is great about teaching you certain theories and teaching you the, the, you know, the fundamentals of, of legal you know, practice and so, some of the, you know, the, 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 you know, the theoretical piece of it. But there really should be more of a focus as well on what if you want to set up your own law firm? What does that mean? The business piece of the legal practice, because whether you're in-house or you're um, sort of in private practice, there's a big component of, you know, developing a clientele, of how yeah. do you sell yourself, your skills, how do you, you know, the administrative processes of everything you need to do, and I think we, we miss a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And is it because of this management role kind of that's required uh, why you decided to do an MBA as well? The MBA was something that I was always interested in because of my background in HR as well, and I noticed, you know, going through this and my experiences, how important it was to to have that that ability to communicate, the ability to connect with the business client. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's something that I've a always wanted to do, and b, you know, there's a direct correlation to what you do and the the benefit that you obtain from that work. And so. You know, a lot of uh, employers uh, that you work, especially work in-house, have a tuition reimbursement program. Yeah. So it's something I highly recommend that. I know it's tough. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's super <coughs> tough, and you're working, and you have family, and so many other things going on. But if you can do it, you should definitely do a part-time something just to supplement that. 
Well, I just want to say how happy I am that you're doing it with Wilfer Laurier because uh, I did business at Wilfer Laurier, so I'm happy that you're pushing that further. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it was a great program. Um, what I liked about it was, for me, it fit my personal schedule. It was alternate weekends. So I, I know it's tough. You know, you're there Friday and Saturdays every alternate weekend from, you know, evening on Friday and from the morning to the to the afternoon of, on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, obviously, you got the, the group work and all these other things that you need to do to prepare. But it just fit my schedule well because I can maintain, you know, working full time. Yeah. I can still do a lot of the, you know, the family obligations, and at the same time, I slowly inch towards getting my my MBA. Very nice. What percentage of your work, um, would you say, is actually billable hour type legal work versus management versus other portions? Oh. Hmm. Good question. I, I think the actual billable type of work that I would do is probably about 35 to 40 percent. Okay. I think that the bulk of it is really managing the, you know, the customer. It's really managing the department. It's, it's really doing a lot of that. I would call it more business work than it is legal work. Mm-hmm. But you almost have two hats. You have the the management slash business hat, and then you have the legal hat. You got to be very good at knowing which hat you're wearing when you're doing what because legal privilege will only attach to the legal piece, but not necessarily always to the business piece. No, that's an interesting point. That line, the line must be blurred sometimes. Yeah, oh, very way. much. Especially when you deal with certain issues like compliance or, uh, you know, even HR to some extent. If you're very knowledgeable of the area, then sometimes you are more likely to overstep your boundaries or to get into the business side of it. So you have to always keep in mind that you might not be privileged. How many hours do you find yourself working a week? It depends on the issues, right? There are ups and downs. There are times when they're super busy, and there are times that are, you know, you have a little bit more time to catch up with things. Yeah. So I tend to find, you know, because you don't have the, the pressure of building a clientele, um, you know, like in private law or private practice, if you're not doing work, if you're not doing billable work, then you should be going out with a client. You should be trying to develop that relationship with a client somewhere, mm-hmm. going out, doing something like that. You don't really have that pressure. So in house, the the beauty of it is when you're done with your work and you're really done with your work, you can go home. You don't really need to be doing the you know, client development piece. Yeah. Versus in like a private practice where you do need to focus on that because that's a fundamental part of your job. So that really never ends. Yeah, there's probably a lot to be said for that in terms of that elusive, wily term work-life balance. What does that mean to you anyway? What does work-life balance mean to you? Well, I think work-life balance really means that uh, – you're able to do your your work functions. You're able to meet your family obligations, and you're able to have a little bit of spare time to do the things that make you happy and the things that you know you want to do. So, be it do a part-time MBA or you know go out dirt biking or do whatever else you do. I mean, yeah. that's part of the you know the ability to be able to mix all those three things to keep the three balls up in the air and make sure nothing ever falls. Yeah. Well, that juggling piece is, I guess, uh, a lot of people find that very tough. To oh, juggle all those three pieces together. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, kids really added a little complexity to it. Um, and that's why I decided to do the MBA when I did, because I knew that if I didn't do it when the kids were young, it just it wasn't going to happen afterwards. And then you get into the, yeah. you know, all the other obligations, the school obligations, the homeworks, the uh, taking them to hockey practice or soccer practice, and all those other things that come into play. So you do it early, you get it done when you can, mm-hmm. and you make that sacrifice early on because it will pay dividends throughout your career. What's what's the biggest challenge that your, your role in Nissan presents? 
I, I think the biggest challenge is the, the one that you, you know, keeping that legal and business separate because, yeah. you know, you're there, you're you're in charge of an issue and or you become involved in an issue and you wouldn't become part of the solution. You want to try to get involved and help out in any way you can. And you have to realize that at some point, you know, your role ends and somebody else's begins. And if you get too comfortable, then you might start getting into, you know, giving business or making business decisions and that starts getting a little bit more dicey in terms of, some of the legal protections and even how much you get involved. That thing you mm-hmm. want to do is get called into the stand as a witness yeah. or something that really should be leading as a counsel. Certainly. So in the next question, we want you to boast a bit <laughs> and uh, feel free to boast a bit. Uh, what are some skills that make you successful in this role or that have made you successful in the past? Hmm. Well, uh, I, I would say I've, I've never been I've never been shy to, to do hard work. I mean, I, I, I don't mind hard work. I actually enjoy it, especially if it's challenging, especially if it's something that I see, you know, as an opportunity to develop certain skills or to get to a certain result. I like that. I like to challenge myself. I like to work hard towards that. And at the same time, I, I like the multiple facets of, you know, the legal piece, the HR piece, the, you know, the, um, the business piece. I like how all that comes together and those things really, you know, help me in terms of how I approach issues and how I do my job. And I think it's it's all about finding your niche, finding your strength, finding what gives you passion, what, what makes you, you know, happy in your job and your career and really sticking to that and taking taking full advantage of it. I mean, I look back at high school and it's not that I couldn't do it. I just didn't feel motivated to do it. And all growing up, especially in an area like Gene and Finch, I, I got to meet so many people, so many diverse backgrounds, and it was just... The challenge, the the learning piece for me was just the social piece and getting to know all these people. I just found it fascinating. Mm-hmm. My school at that time was so regimented, and you had to take this course, you had to take that course. You had to. I didn't find an interest in that. Yeah. So it's yeah, really do what you love. That's it's very it's very interesting you bring that up because in our prior interview we actually spoke a bit about how students nowadays are getting forced to make a decision about their career at a very early stage and sometimes as early as high school. Right. So so it's good to hear that even in high school, if you're not sure and you can take some time uh, and then finally find the path that uh, best suits you. And once you do, then as we can see from your case, you become quite successful at it. Beyond high school, I, I, can, I can sincerely say that until probably the end of my undergraduate, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, to some extent, you never know what you want. Yeah, I think yeah. It's, a, it's a constant evolution, right? I mean, in a sense, it's, it's, it sounds like maybe even 10 years from now for you, there might be some new aspects of law or, or your career that you want to explore. Sure. I mean, who knows? 10 years from now, I might be in government affairs. I might be in compliance. I might be in, you know, a completely different area. I mean, and that's part of the beauty of nowadays, too. Mm-hmm. I think people are getting – back in the days, you know, you, you went into a workplace and you had very little education, but you sort of developed your career as you went along in the corporation. Nowadays, I think people are getting a lot of – skills and education early on, which then gives you another level of flexibility as you move, move on in your career because it allows you to move into different realms, different areas. Yeah. Something else that you've um, really highlighted for me is the importance of and the benefit you can derive from talking to people outside of sort of formal education or or the formal workplace and having experiences outside of those areas and how much they can build you and therefore you're better off in that job oh, and uh, in that career. Yeah. Well, even even yeah. like, I mean, we have a major advantage, especially in a place like Toronto and just Canada generally. 
that, you know, we're so multicultural. You get to meet so many people. You get to understand so many cultural backgrounds. And you know what? That becomes a key when you're working on a company that's international. I mean, you're yeah. working with so many people around the world. And just having even that basic understanding of how people are the same and how people are different just really helps you. It really helps you connect to a different level, and it really helps you do your job that much better. So take yeah, advantage of that. Good yeah. point. So I know we have talked a bit about mark, uh, networking, but do you have any final pieces of advice for somebody graduating from law school right now or in uh, their final years of law school and looking at their legal career ahead? Yeah, I mean, it's very individualistic and very personal, but, I mean, on my end, I mean, the key that I would always try to bring out is, you know, don't don't set yourself a very rigid plan of what your life is going to be like or what your career is going to be like and start stressing out or losing faith or losing your your ambition if it starts deviating from that because mm-hmm. you never know what really is the ultimate outcome just do what you like do what you're passionate about let, let flexibility be you know a strength and see where it takes you just you know be passionate about what you do and work hard and things will come out and i know right now a lot of graduates especially are having a hard time you know and yeah. but look at alternatives i mean i know for example the yeah you had andre the other day with the lpp yeah Yes. I'm just getting rave reviews about the LPP. I mean, people are talking about how, you know, what a great experience it is and how you have actors coming in and playing certain roles and, and you're trying to mediate a family law dispute and you got the actors who start crying in the middle of the of the interview. <laughs> it's, just, it's really interesting. It's, it's a really great experience. Make the yeah. most out of it. Yeah. Don't think that, oh, wow, I didn't get a, you know, an article placement in a major law firm. I'm, that's it. My career is destroyed. No way. Take yeah, it, yeah. take it with stride. Take the most of what you have, and build on that. You know, become involved in associations. Become involved in developing your network. Mm-hmm. That's just as yeah. important. Create the opportunity. Yeah. I think yeah, exactly. That's what it is. Instead of following traditional paths, sometimes you just got to think a bit outside of the box and uh, see what opportunities lie out there. Because you'd be surprised uh, what comes up. Or you create your own path. I mean, yeah. I, I know some individuals have been very successful in doing that. You know, they. They sort of took a niche, they took a certain area, made it their own, and they're succeeding from that. Fantastic. Well, thanks a lot, Fernando. We really appreciate you taking this time to share your story with us. No problem at all. Thank you guys for, for giving me the, the opportunity to do that. And again, you know, you reach a good audience, and the, the audience is one that really needs to get the message that, you know, don't lose hope and just keep working hard, and you will be successful in your own way. This is The Law School Show.